0: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion.
1: Hey, welcome to Reasonable Doubts. This is Jeremy. In the studio with me is Mr. David Fletcher. Yeah, hello. And Dr. Luke Galen. Hi.
2: I wish I were a doctor. No, you don't. Nah, probably not.
3: You like grading papers? I got 130 of them. Come on over.
2: I do too. Only mine are freshmen
3: in high school.
1: Oh, God. Hmm.
3: Do they confuse the which and that? All the time.
1: I have uh, art students that I grade. Nice. Yeah, their papers always have the most magnificent doodles. But anyways, rather than commiserate about the pains of being a teacher around this time of year, why not talk about how geeked we are about this show? I can hardly believe it myself, but Reasonable Doubts is bringing to you today an interview with not just one Hitchens, but two. That's right, we have an interview with Christopher Hitchens and his brother, Peter Hitchens,
2: I believe on the last episode we actually said now we probably won't get an interview with them, <laughs> but we may be able to air some of the the debate that they had here in yes, town.
1: Yeah. And the truth is it actually turned out to be the opposite way.
3: <laughs> I don't know how Jeremy got in it's almost like almost famous movie where he's like back there with his recorder trying to get into that.
1: <laughs> very much so. It was it was sort of like that. Um, yeah, I guess we should give the backstory. Christopher Hitchens and his brother recently put on a debate here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. In fact, one of the only public debates they've had together.
2: The first in North America, I believe. The first
1: in North America, yep, and the first at all in nine years. Wow, and for those of you who do not know about the situation, Christopher Hitchens, I expect our listeners to know, is an atheist, one of the Four Horsemen.
2: I believe there's now like five or six Four Horsemen.
1: Yeah, there's so is many Dawkins Horsemen and, and, and now. Dinna-
3: and pestilence or <laughs> yeah, famine,
1: uh, but Christopher is one of the the big four, the celebrity best-selling list atheists, and he has a long and notable career outside of and before that. Now, Peter Hitchens also is a journalist, but Peter Hitchens is a practicing Christian. He's an Anglican Christian, mm-hmm. the Church of England, very devout, and he shares some of his brother's wit and some of his brother's attitude, but virtually none of his views. So he's very pro-religion, very Christian, very anti-Iraq war, which uh, I'm sure most of our listeners, but a few of them might be surprised to know that Christopher Hitchens is actually uh, an apologist, so to speak, for the Iraq war and has been very active in arguing that it was the right thing to do. Maybe not all the ways that the war ended up being carried out. I I believe his opinion is that it, it was handled with a large amount of incompetence, as anybody with any sort of rationality should have picked up on by now. But he supports the reasons supposedly why we went in there.
2: I I believe he is the only person left on the planet for whom that is true, actually.
1: (laughs) Well, I I must say, as somebody who is very, very anti-war in general, and especially against the Iraq war, I've never heard an argument that I ever found at all persuasive in the past couple of years, except for Christopher Hitchens, um, if anybody makes an argument for it that I can respect and feel that I w- might, ha- might have had a little bit of trouble countering, it would be definitely his.
2: Jeremy, you actually you were the, the one doubt caster who actually got to spend a good chunk of the day. With the Hitchens brothers,
1: right? You you got some yeah, real face time I, with them. I did actually. I wasn't at all expecting to. You knew you were going to have dinner with them, right? Yeah, I knew. I knew I was going to the the dinner because my wife Jennifer helped organize the event. She played a role in organizing it. As a result, I I was also invited to the nice little reception and dinner with them. Of course, I, I didn't really think I would actually get much time to say anything. Maybe you know, at the very most, say something. Right. Well, of course, we got to do the interview, which was wonderful. But yeah. then afterwards at the dinner, you know, I'm I'm thinking, oh, well, that was the most I could possibly hope for. So he's going to – there's all these rich people there.
2: A lot of people at this dinner, f- right?
1: Fundraisers, um, local presidents of universities and politicians and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's no way. He's, he's in his element right now. Mm-hmm. not going to hang out with a bunch of local skeptic volunteers and organizers. Right. But that's not the case. The great thing was it it ended up after a little bit of hobnobbing with the who's who. He ended up Christopher Hitchens ended up at a table with me and Jeff Seaver, who is the he is the the director of CFI Michigan, a good friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And and also helps us a fair deal with promoting the podcast. Um, So he's he's kind of like the fourth invisible member of Reasonable Doubts. That's right me and bob goodrich who donates the studio that we record in we were all just sitting around a table talking to christopher hitchens for almost the entire evening good 45 minutes at least just hanging out with them probably more and uh i was so intimidated right because he can just tear into people with this wit and and you know you're just so like don't say anything that will arise christopher hitchens right you say something stupid he (laughs) will tear into you yeah right uh, and in fact, I found complete opposite. He was so cool, just real, real down to earth, and real friendly, sophisticated. But that's because he's British. Yeah, the the yeah maybe that's me fawning over that uh, British accent. Yeah, but it it was great. I mean, we talked about intellectual stuff, but I gotta say the the most fun was as the wine and it's yeah. the Johnny Walker Black Label uh, too kept, manly for kept me. on pouring. You know, pretty soon, it it was pretty much us sharing favorite Monty Python moments with one another. (laughs) So that was great, quoting Life of Brian back and forth. Wow. Uh, He even – he sang us a Bob Dylan song. I can't even believe that. That is amazing. We were talking – we got on Bob Dylan somehow, (laughs) and he was um, singing – he was reciting Bob Dylan, and we didn't – none of us recognized the song, and it was all embarrassing, and he thought – he. Insisted, no, we, you should know this. And uh, um, no, not coming to mind. So he sang it. And then we were like, oh, okay, okay, okay. So that was really cool. But for me personally, the highlight of the evening was when he told me stories about the times that he would hang out with the late Hunter S. Thompson.
2: Oh, which nice. I had no
1: idea they even knew each other, I, I let alone either. had a friendship and, and spent time together. I won't even repeat the stories because as much as I, I, much as I would love to, as much as I love to, yes, because it might be a violation of trust at one point. I doubt he would want to make those stories public. Uh, not that he was implicated in anything bad, but but really also just because he, he tells them so well, you know, the, the way he tells a story and builds it up and stuff. So Hearing about Christopher Hitchens bombing around with, with Hunter S. Thompson was like a complete geek's dream come true. That's phenomenal. So, yeah, it was it was awesome. He was a really cool guy and very, very nice. He's mean. He has an attitude. He can really cut somebody down to size. But what I, I think people in America especially don't get is it's all just kind of... That's just kind of part of the fun. That's part of challenging somebody and, you know being real with somebody else and not being just this fake all the time. And for as much caustic wit as he has at times, he's a very, very charming person mm. as well. So, yeah, it was it was totally cool getting to hang out with Christopher Hitchens. So I, I hope it won't be the last time. But uh, Reasonable Doubts got a very rare opportunity to interview not only Christopher Hitchens but Christopher Hitchens and Peter Hitchens together, and we are absolutely thrilled that we're going to be able to share that with you guys today. We will not be airing, as we originally said, portions of the debate now that we have our nice little interview, but you can visit our website at doubtcast.org. You can stream video of the debate in its entirety. Here it is. Reasonable Doubts interview with Christopher and Peter Hitchens. The following was recorded at a press conference hosted by Grand Valley State University. Special thanks to Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies, who organized the event, Center for Inquiry Michigan, their co-sponsor, and WGVU for providing us with audio of the interview.
4: If God isn't the main topic, what is? Religion is the religion is the foundational question. It's the, it's the, the underlay of all other questions. I've had very strongly in the last
0: few months, while well, I've known this was going to happen, is that once we've done this, we won't do it again, because I think that will be enough.
4: If this became a dog and pony show or regular routine, it would it would soon become inauthentic. Despite our own innate seriousness, sincerity, and so forth, it would it would become showbiz. So we're not going to have a dog and pony show. I wouldn't say I'd never do it again, but I think it should be safe, legal, and rare. The expectation of fratricide, I think, on the part of anyone who has it, will be disappointed. I once
0: compared myself to Canada uh, and its relationship with the United States, to which he
4: replied he didn't realise I was relaxed about it as that. um, (laughs) (laughs) I am. But the other thing is, that I think people don't notice, is how many things we agree about. In particular, um, I think we both tend to dislike the same sorts of people, and the same sorts of mentality, and say, of the recent past, this is a this is a guess, but I bet I'm right, the use of the word misspeak for lie, or controversial for raging demagogue and a and, uh, thug, um, would strike us both as a... Uh, the abuse of the political process, trampling on the English language, uh, easy free passes for people who shouldn't be getting them. Uh, I would say that without actually checking what Peter has written about. I, I would feel I knew that in the way that some people are said to know how the, if their twin is having a migraine, something I've never particularly <laughs> cared about. But you know what I mean? It isn't really, I mean, it's not at all unusual, as Peter was saying, that brothers would not be of the same mind or opinion. If we didn't live so much of our lives in print or on the on the air, people wouldn't notice. And many, many people have brothers they don't that or, that often see or that much agree with.
1: One of the things we've been focusing on a lot, and I wanted to ask your impression, because both being from uh, Great Britain, there's been news about Muslim no-go areas, these games supposedly, where um, um, people are becoming more and more isolated culturally and, and whatnot all the issues that relate to free speech and I was wondering if I could get your comments in regards to what's going on in Europe over free speech laws and uh, hate speech laws that are trying to curtail criticisms of religious...
0: Recently in England, uh, laws were introduced for, I think, religiously aggravated crimes uh, and Um, I'm trying to remember the exact phrase the idea being that a a crime committed would be worse because it was motivated through faith hate uh, which is a fundamental departure from the principle of English law which is that the the action is is, is what is being punished Uh, in fact the, the only time this has come up was a couple of weeks ago over an attack on an Episcopalian rector in East London which is believed to have been done by Muslim youths. And they call him a, a rude word uh, attached to the word priest. I know of another incident which took place in, in northern England a few years ago where a girl guide leader was attacked on her way into a church uh, by, um, again by apparently Muslim youths throwing quite large stones at her and shouting Christian bitch. These things do happen. No-go areas is, a, I think, something of an exaggeration. There are, particularly in, in parts of, of northern England and in London, s- solitudes. So you have people living side by side who have nothing whatever to do with each other. In Bradford in particular, large numbers of people who, who, whose families originate from Pakistan and, and who are Muslim live in the same city as its its the people who've whose families have lived there for centuries. And they don't really, they'll speak to each other on a bus or in a shop or in a place of business, but they would never go into each other's homes or have any other kind of commerce. That has definitely happened, and there are Muslim areas in which large, elaborate mosques have sprung up, usually on high ground, to demonstrate a position of of supremacy and where the churches are more or less empty. And in terms of what you can say about it, there is obviously a great limit, partly because of the, the fact that Muslims, though not entirely, but, but large, most Muslims in Britain are Asians, and therefore the issue of racial bigotry comes in at the same time, and people feel very restrained about what they can say for fear of being accused of racial bigotry when what they're actually addressing is something different. In the rest of continental Europe, particularly in the, in the Netherlands uh, and in Belgium, uh, but also in parts of France, particularly Strasbourg, uh, northern Italy and large parts of Germany where there's a very big Turkish population, there is a, a large and growing Muslim population which is making a greater and greater impact on the way in which people live and penetrating the sky with more and more minarets. And it's, in my view, if people are worried about the Islamization of Western civilization, this seems to me to be a much more serious part of it than the, frankly, pumped up and over, uh, overplayed uh, wild panic talk about terrorism which we get all the time from our governments.
1: My concern is over um, the right to criticize religion. For example, we have this uh, resurrection of the whole Danish cartoon debate uh, mm-hmm. and protest that's going on after, uh, what was it? intelligence indicated that these cartoons, that uh, there was a death, there was an assassination plot on the one of these cartoons, and so they republished them. And these debates are brewing up. And I often see hostility towards the people who are writing the cartoons and publishing in solidarity. No, I can
4: help you out there. Um, but Fleming Rose, who, the editor of the, the Jutland Post, is a, who commissioned and published those cartoons and gave his reasons why he thought it was time to do it, is a friend of mine and is one of the many friends I now have, um, not all of them European, some of them... Um, who have to live under police protection now, uh, and, and not because of any imagined terrorist threat, I might add, but or any f- uh, hyped or fabricated one because of a very, very direct one of threat and violence to their own persons and the, and the magazines and other outlets of information and opinion that, um, that they work for and with. Uh, and I was the one who organized the demonstration in front of the Danish Embassy in Washington thinking it was about time the Danes saw at least a friendly crowd outside one of their embassies just one day made up of of people who were not mainly motivated by hatred and violence. That's presumably why I'd have to tell you about the demonstration, because it didn't get any coverage, because it didn't threaten violence or practice hatred. The uh, entire American media, with the exception of the Weekly Standard and a magazine I write for myself occasionally, um, well, actually regularly, um, Free Inquiry, uh, refused to publish as a news item the pictures that were in contention. In other words, people were told there's a fight about smooches. In the age of the image, the completely image-dominated period of media existence, the images themselves were not deemed to be fit for showing. Now, come on. Everybody knows what's going on here. And self-censorship is probably the very least of it. Anyway, uh, or it would be if there wasn't actual censorship, or, or in other words, if the copies of our little magazine had not been pulled from the shelves of Borders Books. Borders Book says, you reprint those cartoons, we are not going to let you sell them in our store. So I will never do another reading in Borders Books. Small thing, Department of Empty Threats, just I won't, okay? and they, they know why. But to tell you this is in a sense to tell you some news because I, I can't tell you the people who gave in because of threats because telling you that would be telling you things that could be of use to those who are bringing the threats of physical force. So it's a, very, it's a very neatly wrapped up capitulation of a whole culture crying before it's hurt when there actually is no threat that we could not, with ordinary pugnacity, just resist and say we won't be spoken to in this tone of voice. Surrenders prearranged and done in advance without anyone being consulted. No reader, no voter has been even asked what, what they think about, it, whether, they would, whether they would themselves accept a microscopic risk to defend the First Amendment and the values that underpin it. This, I think, is a really, a really gruesome state of affairs.
1: People would argue that these images, because they are intolerant and because they are bigoted, that's why... That's not what they
4: publish. argue. They don't argue that at all. I've never heard that argument. It was made very plain to me. I know, I live in Washington, it's my hometown, Washington, D.C., Nations Cup. I know a lot of the people who are responsible for making these editorial decisions in newspapers, magazines, and television stations. And I know why they made this, it was out of fear. Hmm. Simple. They didn't say, we don't want to say something intolerant about Islam. It says we can't stand the heat that we think might result. So they're anticipating. It's known in playground terms as crying before you've been hurt. It is bodyguarded by a soggy multiculturalism that says that the only kind of, of uh, any variety, any diversity is uh, to be defended except the one that insists upon diversity. In other words, it redefines diversity as uniformity. If I say the First Amendment and its rights include the right to be offensive to uh, religious fanatics, ah, uh, you're just the one group you're, it isn't quite covered by our wonderful, gorgeous mosaic of diversity and tolerance. I see. I understand. I get it completely. Why then? That's fine. Just don't call it diversity anymore. Call it uniformity and live with it. I think I have a right to insist on that. The fear is not completely baseless, though, because... damn straight is not baseless. I know people who really do have to live on Yeah, well, and, but, but most
0: of us remember Theo van Gogh, who was um, murdered in an
4: Amsterdam street. Actually, ritually, ritually murdered, disemboweled, subjected to a, yeah. a ritualised religious killing, as of a sheep or an animal. Um... And his, his uh, collaborator, Ian Hirsi Ali, who's a very close friend of mine, um, now has to live under complete protection. So does Fleming Rose, the editor of the Joplin Post. So, uh, so for a very long time did my friend Salman Rushdie uh, for the crime of writing a novel. Um, no, there's no question that this is a serious threat. But then where is the intolerance coming from? With those who say that the intolerance comes from those of us who resist and satirize this, uh, are preparing in full view not a murder but a suicide or well, not just a murder and a concession to murder but a suicide yeah. suicide of free expansion.
0: What is not yet as far as I can see a factor here but which is certainly in several major European countries which is that Islam is now electorally important and so a lot of governments are trying to make accommodations with it. British government certainly is. The British government actually came up with the most extraordinary formula a few months ago in which it would refer to terrorism conducted by people who happen to be Muslims as anti-Islamic terrorism. You'll have to work out how they came to that <laughs> formulation, but that that shows the kind of contortions into which they have got in trying to in, 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 in trying to cope with the fact that there is now a very large and growing electoral
4: basis for political Islam in several Western European countries, and it grows all the time. But because I already mentioned the word satirical, I will just tell you, if I I live in England and and I cooperate with a lot of people who do live and work there, um, if any such legislation that equates um, uh, attacks on religion or religiosity with hate crime or with racism is ever enacted or or attemptedly enforced, I will certainly demand... From the Department of Public Prosecutions, that the next person who refers to a man who blows up a Shia mosque with its congregation in Iraq, the person who describes that person as an insurgent, be arrested for Islamophobia. I think that's the very least we can do for those who deliberately—the only people we know of in the world who deliberately set out to kill Muslim civilians every day, and in the most gross way, in the and the most—if you like, it's not a word it's easily in my mouth—but in the most profane and blasphemous manner. At their devotions, on their pilgrimages, in their houses of worship, tearing and, uh, and bloodying their, their holy books and the holy places, are the the Islamist uh, terrorists, the Islamofascists. fascists. Anyone who describes those people with euphemistic words should indeed be indicted and arraigned, if this law is to mean anything, for inciting and encouraging and celebrating the hatred and murder of um, religionists. How are they going to like to suck on that? I wonder. Because I'm deadly serious about it. If that's going to be the law, while I campaign for its repeal, and until its repealed, I'm going to campaign for this application of it. See how they like a l- touch of that.
1: Other than fear in the Islamic case, when we look at this as a broader phenomenon, what do you think accounts for the double standard in which how we treat criticism of somebody's religious views, as opposed to criticism of somebody's philosophical, political uh, views outside of the realm where we consider them sacred? I I still
0: think it's the fear of being accused of of, of racial bigotry, which is the ultimate thought crime. If you commit that, then you're you're obviously flung out of the community of civilized people, so that's the end. And people are very scared of that. And given the simple truth that large numbers of Muslims in Western countries do come from Asia, it's very... Easy accusation
4: to have made against you, and it's one people one people do fear. It's a very easy one to um, defuse, though. That I think. And incidentally, I don't think racism is a thought crime. I mean, the, the preaching of racial hatred is is, is an offence if it's not a crime. Well, hang so on. Should it, should, should,
0: should, should it be a criminal offence? No, no. But sure. I, mean, no, it
4: is, and I mean, is you no, I didn't say is an, it should be a criminal offence. I mean, I always, is, I always thought offensive. that the, 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 the race
0: relations laws in, in it's not in, what people in, are thinking in, in Britain in the sixties were actually justified because they ended uh, the, the posting of, of notices in boarding houses saying uh, no blacks and a number of other uh, rather disgraceful things. So I'm, I'm, I'm ambiguous about that. But it, it is in, in terms of how we order our society it is something you cannot do and it's something you can't think to, to call
4: something a thought crime doesn't necessarily dignify it as something which you ought to think. No indeed but it's an utterance question and when I say it's an offence I mean it's an offence offence to me not an offence to the law but it's, um, it can have criminal implications with it but I, generally I think everything should be both thinkable and sayable I mean, that, that principle matters more to me than than the feelings of anyone who might be hurt by any violation of it but um, it should be noticed that in, again, speaking about the country I know best in Europe, my country of birth, um, the warnings of what was coming by way of uh, Islamist intolerance, by the way of the importing into Great Britain of uh, communities from the extremely backward and feudal and underdeveloped parts of North Africa and Pakistan were arranged marriages to cousins down the generations and the terrible consequences such as deformed births are comf- second nature. People like Nadim Aslam, for example, who's written this wonderful book about the Yorkshire Muslim community called Maps for Lost Lovers, or Hanif Qureshi, who wrote My Son, the Fanatic. Hanif Qureshi. Monica Ali, the author of Brick Lane, Salman Rushdie, most famously. All of these people were were telling liberal Westerners, we come from these Muslim populations. We know what they're like. Don't you let them get away with this. And don't you let them guilt trip you into saying that criticism of this is racism. Don't let that happen to you. These... All these people are friends of mine. I'm very proud to count them as such. Very important. And all of them, of course, are free from any uh, religiosity of their own, Islamic or any other kind. I uh, regard the emancipation of people from religion as the main emancipation of the human mind, human society can can hope to experience, which is my own view. Anyway, in this country, it's nothing to do with them. Um, I, I think there are, the reason why I say Lawrence Wright wasn't criticized last night. Jeremiah Wright wasn't criticized until recently, Al Sharpton can be called in the New York Times he's always called the civil rights activist how did he get that to be called that what has he ever done to get himself called that Al Sharpton. has he ever done anything for civil rights anyone knows about active yes active in pinching himself every morning getting, i'm getting I'm going to get away with it again by t- this time tonight four people would have had me on TV and sent me a limo and called me Rev he can 't believe his luck all he proves is in this country anyone who put the word reverend in front of their name can get away with anything that's not just a problem of people being reluctant to criticize racism. It is, unfortunately, a criticism of a great man who was murdered uh, 40 years ago, Sweet, because the, the decision by almost every white person in America to conclude that what, what the colored folks like is a bit of shout and holler from the pulpit. They like a good preacher when they're talking about political and social and other kinds of freedom. It has been a hugely retrogressive thing. It's meant that the great black socialists and secularists like... Um, Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin—the people who actually organized the March on Washington and did the spade work to get it done, and the groundwork—and got the United Automobile Workers to co-sponsor it, great contribution from Michigan, incidentally—are written out of the record completely. It's all preach about. So anyone who can call themselves that, who can pose as a religious uh, figure, whether it's Farrakhan or Sharpton or Jackson, these frauds and crooks and big mouths and bigots themselves, for the most part gets a free pass from white society. So it is partly true what Peter says that it's because of race guilt tripping, but it's also because of a totally exaggerated deference to men of the cloth that's also allowed frauds and crooks like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and John Hagee and now the wonderfully named Ron Parsley, Rod, Rod Parsley, a Woodhouse-ian, uh a new McCain um, evangelical demagogue from the Midwest, to flourish. Whereas people trying similar sorts of bigotry and demagogy without the, the prefix reverend wouldn't have a prayer, quite rightly. Or I mean to say, a chance. <laughs> <laughs> <didn't mean> <laughs> wouldn't be given the opportunity. Would be right. You know, lying to children for a living is a pretty contemptible way, I think, to go through life. And these guys do it all the time and they, and they get called reverend into the bargain. Woof. And if, only, if they were only lying to the children, but when they rape and torture the children, they're, they're only accused of abusing them. What would anyone be called who did that who wasn't in holy orders? Be called a rapist or a torturer. Now it's an abuser. It. This is a free pass given to the clergy. All this should end. The United States should be much prouder of its secular constitution than it is and willing to stick up for it.
0: Peter, it looks as if a thought is just come.
4: It's staying there. Rod pass. Oh, thank you.
3: For- very thoughtful answers. Any well, other questions?
4: Well, and not to say voluminous answers. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you>. Exhaustive. <laughs> exhausting answer. Oh, you're not a big
3: fan
4: of uh,
2: Hillary Clinton. No. But, uh, is there <laughs> a, a
4: candidate you <laughs> support? No, uh, I'm really, really, really not, and, and I took as as much happy as disgusted and enraged by the, the terrible uh, narcissism over Bosnia and what it conceals, which is her, her own role in making that such a big disaster and such a big nightmare in the first place. I I hope that that has completely ruled her out as even thinkable president of the United States. But if it weren't for that, I would have to say, just not to sound of gallantry, the way she has stood up to the sort of pasting she's got lately and the sheer willingness to get up every morning and do it again, as if nothing would discourage her, is energy worthy of a better cause. I'd like to think she would have done that to save Bosnia rather than just to use Bosnia uh, and its mass death as a means of advancing her own career. But sometimes you think it's possible to think of her caring about something other than herself. I say that very reluctantly.
0: Well, use an illusion familiar to you. She is an Iron Lady in her own right, my word.
4: No, no, no. Soft. She's no, no. Iron ladies wow. Iron ladies do not say the boys are ganging up on me. You can't imagine Thatcher trying oh, to Oh she
0: was me. just doing that to be opportunistic.
4: No, no, she's done it twice now. And also I, Thatcher did weep ...publicly at the memorial meeting, memorial service for the, those who fell in the recovery of the Falkland Islands. But I don't think she ever welled up in any other way.
0: Oh, she did when she was uh, expelled from government. <laughs> oh, perhaps she did that, yes. Uh, she did. Well, I saw well, you. Her. would.
4: I saw. I was there in Paris. The tear was photographed. Maybe brushing away a fractional. No, no, it was, it was when she was actually no, in, no in plumbing, the car moving, on the maybe. way
0: out of Downing Street. The tear was, was brilliantly photographed. It was there.
4: Right. Unwhite. That was, that was the night it was all over. That was it, yeah. The night when she was first voted out, when she was in. Yeah, she way, didn't believe that. I she was there thought, on the steps. She, still she said, I'll fight off. thought she'd make it. With the British, in the Faubourg Saint Honoré. Mm-hmm. And I've also met, in my time, I've met Beniz- I met de several times. I've met Mrs. Indira Gandhi. I did not meet Mrs. Skodamaya or Mrs. Bandranaka, but the women who really had to put up with male dominated societies and, and real male persecution are not self pitying and whimpering in this no, awful way. If I was a f- female or a feminist, either, that, I think, would get me down a lot. When well, I saw her shed a tear for herself in New Hampshire, as did everybody else, What well, I'd like to know what I said in my pizza. Would Is it conceivable that if it was pointed out to her, as it has been, that her telling Clinton, her husband, her, her disbarred, perjured, impeached, professional liar husband, to stay out of Bosnia in the first place probably cost two hundred thousand lives. Would that thought make her shed a tear? I'm willing to bet you everything I own that it would not. She could not it couldn't it's not conceivable to imagine her shedding a tear for another person. That is what I'm looking for. And I think I've found it. And what it means is she, she's she's a psycho. You <laughs> like him.
0: No, no, I think we had an agreement in 1776 or around about then that we stayed out of this. <laughs> uh, stick stuff. We but have enough problems of our own. I, uh,
4: I, gather, I gather she's joined a very extremely conservative religious group now to validate her faith claims in the election, which are the latest incarnation. And I, I notice that Senator McCain has stopped being an, an Episcopalian and become Baptist. And I see that Senator Obama has joined some rock and roll shout and holler a horror show horror, Indeed, has been for a long time so it looks to me as if religion is poisoning the campaign in a big way it's, um, every candidate seems determined to defame and trample upon the one thing that makes the United States the great country it claims to be you don't have to do any of this and the government can never tell you you can it's a real shame and I hope they're changing ships on a falling tide as well because all the evidence is that the number of Americans who are not impressed by supernatural claims is, is the fastest-growing group in the country. Fifteen percent of Americans now say they don't identify with any denomination at all. Forty percent of it changed change their denomination at least once. The ex-Catholics are, or the lapsed, as the church insists on calling them, because you can't leave, as you know, a totalitarian church. You're not allowed to leave. You can be excommunicated. You can't leave. Um, something people don't understand very well. Is is the largest group in the country, but the fastest-growing group are those who don't identify, and they are regularly insulted by candidates who act as if they don't exist. Well, they do. We do, and that's to say nothing of the huge numbers of people who do say, "Yes, I'm a Lutheran or a Catholic," and who aren't really. I mean, who are riddled with doubts. um The two
2: speeches that are getting so much comment in this campaign, McCain's speech on his Mormonism down at the Bush library and the Obama speech
0: in Philadelphia
4: where he's trying to transcend the racial issue. Well, to say nothing of what got uh, the former great Michigander out of the race, yes. I mean, But I mean, that was disgraceful. I mean, he, if you remember, when, when the Carolina primary was in major contention, he didn't even go, I think, to the state. He stayed entirely in Nevada where his campaign was run entirely by a Mormon sectarian machine in order to get Eke out a narrow victory that entirely based on a confessional turnout and, and donation, making himself the Mormon candidate yeah. of a crackpot racketeering sect. You know, the, the no one can lo- no one can look at the Book of Mormon or the history of Joseph Smith without realizing that they're seeing a plain fraud being involved in the in the clear light of day it took roars of laughter from its originators. Have you read Form book on Joseph Smith? Well, God damn. The local, <laughs> newspaper, the local newspapers of upstate New York draw a perfectly good picture. A many times convicted. Very, very charismatic fraud. So, Peter, are you saving all your business? Nothing more. I, I don't than, want to. Look, look nothing look, more. How than, many of you are there here? I mean, look, let's leave it. <laughs> Gosh, let's I mean, we're supposed to do this and <laughs> so jump around I mean, and get into a short It's been a fantastic nope. campaign from the secular point of view because of what... What, the crying lack of a missing quality is that becoming increasingly what we want is less faith based pretense, less faith based hypocrisy why do they insult us by thinking what we want to hear as professions of, we don't we want competence and integrity we don't want professions of of supernatural allegiance. that's true of people I presume who are honestly and sincerely religious they don't, do not want to hear their own faith exploited I so let's hope it's a big miscalculation, this uh, religious condescension. Yeah. I think it probably is.
1: I just wanted to ask what you think, the, what role does the media play in that? Um,
4: in, th- in this aspect of it. Lazy, I think they tend to make the assumption that a person who's made a claim of faith has ticked a, a box that the electorate expects them to check. And I think that the, it's an unexamined assumption. that could stand a lot more examination. I'm very ashamed of the way the profession behaved over the Danish cartoon business. It's happened again this week. Sam Harris was asked to do a piece on on the revival of the Danish cartoon question by the Washington Post, and they're, they're not going to print it, and they've more or less told him why because it, he uses this idea of religious violence in the same sentence as the word Islam, and they're not willing to run that risk. And they can't they can't have expected he would avoid the question. And they can't very well ask him to. Forbid himself to speculate on it. So um, it's a combination of cowardice and consensus. Actually, cowardice and consensus would be the name of any book I wrote about any aspect of uh, the American uh, uh, press. Well,
1: hopefully, the high grosses you guys are getting with, with your books will change the media.
4: A bit. No, they won't. <laughs> <No. laughs> <laughs> they won't. Well, thank you. So, please, Bonara. Now,
2: as for the debate itself, the three of us haven't really talked much about it since then because Luke scampered off to be with his cats, I went out to drink, and Jeremy went out to drink with Christopher
1: Hitchens. I'll leave it for it's the true.
3: listener to judge which evening was better spent.
1: That's right. I guarantee you, I was probably the most inebriated of the bunch, and I don't drink. I was just trying beer, to so keep up to with— do? Christopher.
2: Yeah, good luck with that.
1: Yeah, it was a bad idea.
2: But now, initial reactions to the debate. First off, I thought the way they set it up was fantastic, where they started with – it was two questions from the moderator. The first question was about the war. And because it was a largely – I would say a largely liberal audience, there was a mix, but a fair chunk of the people there were more liberal. They ended up kind of falling on Peter's side. For the first portion of the debate because Peter is the – was giving the anti-war argument including me And, and it made me kind of like Peter. And I thought, well, this guy, this guy is pretty good. Now what that says about me that I went, wow, the guy who thinks like me is cool. And Christopher did make some very good arguments for the war. I still think his argument is less compelling than the argument against the war. But then they moved on to the, the religion debate, the question, is there a god? And if so, is he great? Was that, was that the question? It was something
1: – Yeah, they they framed it wide open so that either of them could just take it in whatever direction they saw fit.
2: Right. You'll notice that the questions asked by the audience –
3: they were Yeah, there was a minority – the majority of them were about the God thing uh, yeah. and, and the war ones might have been just scurrying around edges of specific topics on a war or something. Right, yeah. right.
2: But there was a couple of things that came up throughout the debate that I wanted to talk about here because there was, there was one thing in particular that Peter brought up that Christopher never really addressed. And it's, it was a question that I don't know the answer to. He brought up the idea of the terror, the French Revolution. That was a movement based on humanist ideas mm-hmm. and yet it was horribly bloody and, and so forth. With Stalinist Russia, I think Christopher makes the correct argument, the most logical argument, that Stalinist communism is in fact the religion that took the place of, of Christianity and all of that. But when it comes to the terror – how do we, as humanists, address that issue?
1: I'm really surprised Beter Hitchens did not push that one on Christopher. Too. Because uh, Christopher Hitchens made this very bold statement that...
3: Show me a society that's yeah. based on the ideas of the Enlightenment and yes. Spinoza, Spinoza and, 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 and that sort of atheism. And Payne than, and Jefferson. And uh, then that would be a fair comparison because every other one, typically Stalinism and whatever, those arguments are not... Accurate comparisons, and right. so when Peter brought up the Enlightenment or the uh, the French Revolution, that was probably as closest he got could get to the criteria that Christopher laid out of a society that was based on the more yeah. secular ideals and like, exactly communism.
2: But but he
1: didn't respond to it. My my memory was that he repeated the question. He then he w- he went on to criticize the fact that look, um, Tsarist Russia was a religious place. They came out of a long tradition of um, religious domination and respect for monarchy and that sort of thing.
2: But also where, where the czar was considered God. I mean, the, the czar is, is kind of at the place of God. So when uh, czarist Russia... Uh, came to an end. it was that rejection of of that mindset
1: right. and so he just repeated his look, that's clearly not a case where we have secularism, an atheist right. state coming out of a context of enlightenment thought, but he sidestepped it because yeah the no. the uh, you cannot say that it. Bringing up the French Revolution.
3: I'm going to have to disagree with you guys. I don't see it as essentially different from the Stalinism, communism thing, because you have to look at why were the atrocities committed? Was there a religious basis for the atrocities? The French Revolution, they were getting people who were the aristocrats, and it was a political purge. Just but also like the Stalinist priests. Yeah, the priests, but it was anybody who was in cahoots with the previous regime. Royalists, yes, okay. priests. But, but those sort of things. So they
1: weren't going after just religious people. Right. They weren't people. saying,
3: are you a Christian? Go to the guillotine. Not a Christian? Oh, hey, okay. let's go have a beer. And the same sure. with, with Russia. You know, these were political people. The, the difference between that and the religious atrocities like the uh, you know, Crusades and the Inquisition were people were specifically targeted for no other reason than they were a different religion. And I think that that's the thing I'm so sick of hearing about with the, oh, what about communism and Stalin thing, is that those people were targeted. Yes, priests and religious people were targeted, but it wasn't because they were religious. They were opposed to the regime. Right.
2: But the bigger issue for me is the fact that the the terror was based on enlightenment principles, and yet it was still – this bloody, violent thing. Now, whether they were targeting people specifically because they were religious or because of political reasons, it was still well, rooted in humanist philosophy.
3: The other distinction, though, is that who was the populist that often they carried these things out? You know, even if you were going to argue that Stalin and Hitler were doing that because of atheist things, the people that were shoving people in the gas ovens were not, you know, the elite intellectual atheists. This, and these were a Catholic population. The only true comparison, I would change Christopher Hitchens argument to not just a Spinoza and pain based um, uh, state, but the endogenous population where people are naturally atheists. not North Korea because they're being forced to. or Communist right, China. Right. But show me a country where the people where the majority of people are by choice, atheists. And then the country is also run with a secular basis. Those countries like Denmark, Sweden, Sweden Norway, yeah. they don't become violent. Nobody's being forced to be an atheist. They're just that way because that's the way the population has drifted.
1: I think another point to bring up, too, is I don't know if Christopher Hitchens could make this reply, but, you know, check out our episode on Islam (laughs) uh, as far as the reasonable doubts position. And we are perfectly willing to accept on this show how your social context and the things you have to endure – form a separate point of consideration as opposed to just your metaphysical and philosophical viewpoints. And we would cut slack for people who are in, I mean, cutting slack is a wrong way of putting it, but we would be careful to distinguish what is produced by the ideology and what is overstepping it. Mm. Now, if you consider how this revolution is replacing how many decades of oppression, and that was one thing that – The madness of mobs and everything else.
2: Yeah, that was something that Christopher did touch right. on is that kind of the revolutions are equivalent to the repression that they have experienced before the revolution. It's so the, the blood band
3: effect. The more you oppress people, right. the more it snaps back. The longer the regime holds on to power, take, like, you know, Romania off to the bitter end, the more they're going to get purged, whereas the states that are less – that cede power gradually, there's less of a – Right.
2: So so what you can get out of that is that the, you know, the bloodshed in the terror is equivalent to what those repressed groups experienced before the terror. But I still think it's hard to get around the idea that this is a movement based on – Enlightenment uh, philosophy. I think
1: it's hard in a certain way because for intellectual consistency purposes, like I do not like it when a religious apologist simply dismisses all the violence that happened during – was it the Hundred Years' War? Hundred Years' War. The Hundred sure. Years' War, all the religious warfare in Europe, the Inquisitions and all that, and say, look, that's a perversion of Christianity.
2: Or that it was actually politically driven. Right,
1: right. That is not the true – putting politics aside even when they would say that is, that is a bastardization, that is a corruption of mm-hmm. what the true principles, the true tenets of Christianity is – I I think personally that there might be a little bit of truth of that, but I think they're whitewashing things. I don't think they're being completely honest with how much the Bible does advocate violence. Hmm. Now, if we are on the same side to then say, well, look, this is not Spinoza, this is not... This is not Locke, Bacon, Descartes, well, and it's the, Enlightenment philosophy, the Enlightenment ideals that are prompting this. This is a corruption of them, as Thomas Paine viewed. Right, exactly. He that's, went to, that's what I was going to say. He, he was initially
2: for the French Revolution, and then he saw it and said, this is, this is out right. of control. This is not what, what we meant.
1: But then it sounds like we're being inconsistent, like we're using a different standard yep. to judge our situation than we are to use, to judge theirs. I think that's where it sounds difficult, but I do think the political realities need to be taken in consideration. that's,
3: that's, see, that's the problem with the historical thing, is that people could go back and pick examples that best suit their own criteria, and you, you pick hmm. the best of yours and the worst of theirs, straw man type stuff. And that's why I prefer to focus on the empirical type evidence. Let's say that we could round up a thousand atheists and a thousand Christians and do some sort of thing of, let's see how far they'd be willing to push things with people they didn't like, and I would submit to you that the ex- that experiments have shown that when you have people that are uh, that are atheists, you know, because the accusation is if a country was run by these people, it would descend into the terror or right, whatever. Right. If you had a thousand atheists and a thousand Christians and had parallel societies, there might not be a lot of differences between them, and I think that itself is a victory for you know that atheism doesn't make you more barbaric. But I would submit that there's even an advantage for those people, and that they would be less willing to persecute people who disagreed with them. Hmm. By and large, and I think the data supports that. They're lower in authoritarianism than Christ- than religious people and not Christians are. Not yeah, surprisingly. Uh, the surveys show that they are more willing to say, I would let my kid pick and choose what they want to do. That's their decision. Whereas religious people tend to say, nope, I would only give them the religious side of the story. I would not like it if they turned from that. There's, there's study upon study upon study showing that religious... People are less tolerant mm-hmm. of of people that differ with their worldviews in general uh, than atheists are.
1: And and not a completely different point. Let's let's also recognize that the bloodbath of the French Revolution ended. You know, after true, the hysteria true. died ran down, ran out of people
3: to cut their heads off, and well, then it stopped.
1: Yeah. Well, I th- <laughs> th- there is some truth in that too. I, absolutely. I, yeah. Okay. I didn't mean it to be that callous. Oh, right, but right. I meant after the hysteria, after the bloodbath stopped there wasn't this continuing kind persecution of, yeah. of, uh, of um, people who were religious or it, w- like that. it was not a yeah. you know whereas um religious warfare is sustained i mean it, it's died down in europe of course but these things crop up again and again in these traditions look at the middle east look at jews mm-hmm. and, and palestine it's not like after the jews moved into the promised land There was a brief spat of violence, and then everybody got back to reality in a normal.
3: Some of the four horsemen make this critique too: that the thing, if if religious violence like the Inquisition and all those things, if it stopped, it wasn't because of inter-religion ideas that come from the Bible. It Mm. was because of a corrosion of religion by humanism. That is, if things have changed since the Middle Ages and the Crusades and things, it's not because of religion made that change. They didn't suddenly realize, hey, you know what? I think we need to listen to Jesus a bit more. It was because of the Enlightenment and humanism that fought back the barbarities of religion. So, and within atheist movements, it, it tends to be more self-correcting. That The people would say, who is more, think of it this way, who's more critical? Would you rather be wrong on an idea in a room of 100 atheists? Uh, they're, it's like herding cats to get them to agree on anything and they're likely to hmm. correct you. It's more self-correcting than religious ideas because the religious ideas are based on authority. You know, who's going to speak up and say that their, that their minister, or their pastor is wrong?
2: Now, something that you kind of touched on Earlier, Luke, that was my other big issue with the debate, and this is where Christopher really let me down, is that Peter said very directly, and you can see this in the video, that essentially if there is no God, Mm -hmm. there is no reason to be moral. And not only did he make the point that you can't be moral without God, but he really – elaborated on this, he really went into it. He talked about how, uh, I think it was in England that he was talking about where you read in the news all the time about people getting beaten to death and their heads kicked around like soccer balls by these people. And you know those people don't believe in a god.
1: Uh, No evidence, no support for what he was talking about. And it
2: was absolutely bigoted. It was this really sweeping and horrific statement he had. And Christopher... I felt like did yeah, not did not jump on it like he I'm should have, yeah. like I wanted him to.
3: Well, and then the repetition of this whole uh, kids these days, that's the kids these days argument. You yeah. can have quotes from Roman times of these kids, now that they're blah, 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 they have no respect for authority. I, and that's the common kind of trope of the, of the conservatives in general, but also religion. Like if there's corrosion of religion, look what happens. But again, like we talked about before, that's clearly empirically not supported because compare on a graph, Country's religiosity right. and the level of violence within this society, and clearly the ones that are the least religious with the population, in like in Northern Europe and Scandinavia, are the least violent.
1: I mean, the the balls of the man, the the inference is like a chasm. He's like a daredevil trying to jump this chasm with his inference there, but yet, wow, to applause in the audience. I dare say that a lot of the religious people who were in that audience were not your. Hardcore conservative evangelical. Ilk. No, no. Nope. I'm pretty confident in saying most of the religious people there. I would assume, are our allies, our our liberal religionists, mm-hmm. social socially liberal allies. Although I was w- amazed <laughs> that they would get fired up over such a bigoted comment about. Yeah. It- every time you see people attacking people on the street to not holding open doors for somebody else. That's right. Absolutely. Another another reference. This is how atheism is destroying our civil society. The
3: the conservatives win a lot of points because you can get a lot of people in a moderate uh, range of things, people that are fence-sitters, to agree, yes, people aren't civil because, again, there's that retrospective bias like when I was young we had respect for authority and now people are not standing up for people in the bus, which was his thing. Like, you know, people were surprised that he stood and let somebody pass by in the bus or gave a seat up or whatever. And that thing gets a crowd response all the time. Well, what does dreams. it have
1: to do with atheism? <laughs> Show me that those people who are doing that are the atheists. We get this argument all the time. It is it is the same old, trite, overdone, atheists can't be moral thing, but, mm-hmm. but this is a particular insidious kind uh, when people point out, especially to the new atheists who like to base their argument on the violence that religion can cause, right. they'll say, okay, well – Look at how many people, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Stalin, they've killed on a scale that religion has never been able to, and they were all atheists, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's a ridiculous argument, but rhetorically, in a soundbite culture, it's a really strong one Absolutely. because it's it does sound like. Well, how do you answer that? And any atheist who is going to try to address that is going to have to provide a lot of detail, a lot of nuance. Mm -hmm. And so it's not something that can be easily responded to in soundbite format. I think Christopher Hitchens did a great job in just laying down the historical smackdown, just showing a whole list of facts like, look, it's not that simple. Let's, Let's see how rich the history and the context is. I think there's another way to counter it that's similar that he didn't take. Uh, Luke and I talked to the Christian apologist Stuart McAllister. Stuart McAllister made a statement. I have, even have it down. You cannot separate theoretical Darwinism from social Darwinism. And, and his support for this is because in the 20th century, people acted on these things. Jesus So if you're going to use the argument that religion is deadly and dangerous, how do you explain Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, they weren't religious, but they killed on a scale that religion has never had the power to? My way of kind of countering it as a bit philosophical is just to point out something we've repeated tons of times on this show, is that when you compare Christianity, for example, to atheism, it's not even comparing apples and oranges, it's comparing apples to no apples it's not fair because atheism is not in itself some sort of comprehensive worldview. Christianity does have a systematic theology. Christianity, despite its diversity, despite the room for interpretations, it's a coherent worldview. It has several different components. Atheism is just the absence of it. Peter Hitchens, as you saw in the debate, no doubt if you've watched it, and you can watch it on doubtcast.org. We're just going to keep on plugging that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Peter made this frustrating comment like, well, I I just can't see why you can't admit that these were atheist regimes. Why can right. you simply not admit it? They have to be religious in some sort of sense. I don't necessarily think Christopher Hitchens deserved that criticism. But one way that I have answered these questions to Stuart and other people is, is by, yeah, actually admitting that. I think sometimes you don't really have to threaten your position to admit that. Yes, violence and totalitarianism are the fruits of atheism. When atheism is combined with a metaphysical view mm-hmm. that history is marching purposefully towards an ideal future like you had in communism – An epistemological view that the human mind is some sort of blank slate and it can just acquire any sort of taste, temperament, attitude, any belief, anything is just all acquired from culture. And we can and we can program people to be anything we want, which is an ethical view that the government has a duty to engineer society ideologically to change the economy towards achieving this grand future. Yeah, when you take all those views and you stick them onto an atheist platform, it is a very, very violent and very destructive viewpoint. But those are the doctrines that led, ideologically at least, to that kind of violence. If you were to combine atheism as the history of American free thought has – When you take the metaphysical view that there is no goal or purpose towards Mm -hmm. which nature is striving towards, which is what any one of the four horsemen, which is what any good evolutionist does nowadays, nobody sees evolution as progress towards some sort of outcome. It's purposeless. When you take that metaphysical view, when you take the epistemological view that we have innate psychological processes... We can add argumentation and logic and empirical evidence to those, but but we're not just malleable like a blank slate. We do have a human nature that's inside of us, and so we can't program people through culture. Uh, Well, that leads to another ethical view that is freedom of conscience. You have to have freedom of conscience as a requirement for human happiness. It has to be politically protected. All those views are the staples of... The American brand of free thought that influenced the founders of this country, true of a lot of the Enlightenment intellectuals, and that kind of atheism, when you add those ideas onto atheism, you are never going to get people who would slaughter huge groups of religious people uh, and and do that kind of wide-scale oppression. You'd get people like us in this room. You'd get people like Ed Braden who we're going to be interviewing next week, people who would devote tons of personal time and energy and resources fighting for the freedom for people to express their ideas, even people of which we seriously, seriously disagree. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not putting people to death uh, or, or advocating that they get eliminated because they have a different viewpoint than us. Mm-hmm. Like the ACLU, we we support people we think are creeps, and that we don't want. We don't think the ACLU are creeps, though. <laughs> What's that? what you're saying is that the no.
2: ACLU supports people who yes. they don't necessarily agree with because, because they, support they have the that Bill right. of Rights. Yes, exactly. The, yeah, and that's. I the just thing. wanted to make sure yeah. you were oh, taken sorry. out of context as saying the ACLU yeah. were creeps because we're all card-carrying yeah. members. In, no, in other words, the most
1: hardcore fundamentalist person who I despise all their viewpoints on the world. If the government marched into their church and closed them down because they don't like what they're saying, I would be on the picket line. I, right. I as an atheist, even though I hate those people, far from persecuting them, I would be standing there doing what I could at great risk to myself even to try to mm-hmm. – at least I hope I would. I hope I would have that integrity. Yep. And so it's just a perversion. Th- this whole, well, atheists have killed people too. Look, well, you're not, yes. you're, this is not a fair playing ground. Judge me by what my views actually are. Don't focus on one thing that I don't believe and then think you understand something about how I see ethics or something like that.
2: People who don't believe in Bigfoot have killed people. Yeah. How and can but, you be moral without Bigfoot?
1: Look at the views of Stalin. Look at the views of Pol Pot. Do a little philosophical analysis and see how common they are and how widespread those views are amongst – Amongst American atheists, amongst European atheists, the argument doesn't hold any water. So yeah, admit that atheism has caused all these things because you know what? There is no one thing called atheism. Not all atheists are the same. It's not a viewpoint. Uh It's not a philosophy.
3: It's interesting because all the the different, even if you just compare the four horsemen, they all have very kind of different domains of styles in which they engage their debate. Obviously, they're related to their fields of specialty. Dawkins tends to be mention more uh, scientific aspects and and, and empirical things. Dennett has the philosophical background. Mm. You know, uh, I think Harris and Hitchens are a little bit more similar in that they make arguments that tend to be more based on, you know, on uh, the absurdities of religion and the logical inconsistencies. Right. I think that's where he pulled away in some ways from from Peter and that Peter was probably more standard kind of common sense type thing where you would come up with it with an argument. Um, whereas, yeah, clearly in that way, he was outclassed because it would, it's kind of like watching somebody who's a professionally trained debater against somebody who's just a normal, intelligent person who's, you know. And I
2: thought that was that was a little unfair in in some ways as far as the setup of the debate.
1: I got to spend some time with them a little bit yeah, before and bragger. I'm not bragging. He
3: always spends time with people.
1: Look, I'll brag in a minute. <laughs> oh, but okay. the point I was making, um, besides the bragging, was that Peter's a sharp guy. And, oh, uh, sure. Definitely that. And he spoke very eloquently, such as was heard in portions of our interview, for some of the same points uh, Christopher would. Mm-hmm. But regardless, I think part of the reason why he came across so weak were towards the end, primarily... It's very tif- difficult to have good answers to a lot of those questions. Well, that, I mean, when, when somebody brings up the barbarity of the Old Testament like Christopher Hitchens did from the sacrifice of Abraham, uh, how do you reply to that? I think he tried the best strategy he had available, which was to say, well, they didn't sacrifice Isaac, and that's the point of the story, and I can't believe you get it. Yeah, that was really pitiful, I thought. But what's a better argument, you know? If if you're defending that, what better chance do you have than to make some sort of weird emotional appeal or to say that it's misrepresentation? I
3: I think when people see Hitchens do it and then they say, kind of like we did, well, he's so good at debating and he has such an emotional appeal to people— that's why he wins, but I think that we're neglecting the part of he also has a better position. To he has argue better with. argumentation, uh, and 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 I just I really dislike it when people do the whole you know Isaac story where they say oh but he stopped or it was a lesson in, in obedience. You know how does that? How it does that still doesn't the negate
2: the fact that he put the knife to his yeah. son's throat because his God told Christopher
1: him. Christopher yeah. brings up these absurdities because they are absurd. Right. Right. And P- Peter Hitchens truly was the one that was misrepresenting the story of the sacrifice of mm-hmm. I- Isaac.
3: Then what Christopher Hitchens should have done is said, so if I would have you know, somebody, if I had my son saying, if you really love me, kill your grandson, and if I stopped him right when the blade was about to cut into the neck, that would still be moral? Yeah. If I if I stopped him at that point yeah. and said, No, 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 if you've proven yourself that would be moral to, to psych yeah. somebody like that?
1: I think he asked for a show of hands. Does anybody here deny that the point of that story was that you have to prove how much you'd be willing to give up to follow God? So in the end he was the one that was really truly representing that well. I think Peter yeah, Peter failed because it's hard to argue against some of that. I think a second reason too is just purely psychologically one, maybe maybe rhetorically is that he lost confidence at some point oh yeah um, he just deflated yeah well, at one point I mean, he, said, he was the hero uh, he was asked and to, he was if he
3: went to make a rebuttal by the moderator and he says no it's it's futile yeah uh, I think it was with the communism type thing but
2: he just he just yeah. deflated and and his body language yeah. just said check I'm, out the pictures on
1: doubtcast.org we have a great great <laughs> stock of <laughs> pictures
3: well in sympathy with him I would probably be deflated if I had to go up against Christopher yeah me too it's, it's like going up against Spartacus you know in a gladiator Combat. Absolutely. He
1: received quite a few smackdowns. At one point, Christopher even said, he just said, uh, as people were cheering, he said, who clapped for that argument? Yeah, <laughs> Seriously? Right. You found that persuading? Right. And, and I think at some point he – yeah, he he was the hero. Peter Hitchens was the hero in the beginning of the debate when he was yeah, arguing against Which is against a war. good
2: reason why the format was good because it gave Peter a little right. boost so he wasn't defeated all the way through.
1: Yeah, but then he just – he wasn't prepared. He and, fell apart. And you could tell his affect changed, um, mm-hmm. his posture changed. Yeah, I, so I think another reason why he did well is just psychologically he had – he felt beat up by it or something. He, he caved. He didn't show confidence.
3: I think that's why many of these cases, like when you see debates like that, that's why it's not that's not a good place to resolve pure questions. Of, oh, of true. Truth, yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, just like an no. evolution creation debate or yeah. anything yeah. where there's appeals to emotion or flourishes of rhetorical you know, skill that those are not that's not the place to revol- yeah. resolve philosophical issues.
1: Against somebody who's as rhetorically strong as Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. We have just enough time left in the show to leave you with another Stranger Than Fiction.
2: Muslim is spared a speeding ban so he can drive between his two wives. This comes to us from the Daily Mail, care of the religion news blog. When it comes to avoiding a ban for speeding, the courts hear every excuse in the book, says the article. But yesterday, one motorist offered what must be a unique reason why he should keep his license. Mohammed Anwar said a ban would make it difficult to commute between his two wives and fulfill his matrimonial duties. (laughs) His lawyer told a Scottish court, oh Scotland, will they ever learn... His lawyer told a Scottish court the Muslim restaurant owner has one wife in Motherwell, which is a really great name for a place to keep one wife, one wife in Motherwell and another in Glasgow. He is allowed up to four wives under his religion and sleeps with them on alternate nights. He also needed his driving license to run his restaurant in Falker. So he's got all of these places where he has to be
1: A lot of demands.
2: Yeah. The court heard that Anwar was caught driving at 64 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone in Glasgow. (gasps) I know. Fast enough to qualify for instant disqualification, which is a fantastic sentence there. There's (laughs) two forms of qualify. Anwar admitted the offense, but Sheriff John C. Morris accepted his plea not to be banned, and allowed him to keep his license. What the hell? Instead, he was fined 200 pounds and given six penalty points. But normally this would qualify him instantly for disqualification. So he got off easy, apparently, because the sheriff, I don't know, felt bad for the poor schmuck who's got two
1: wives. Well, yes. I mean, even if your religion permits it, and and even if the state somehow lets you get away with that, why the hell would you want a bunch of wives?
2: But basically, what what they're saying is that he can get away with speeding. It, in this instance, I don't think he's you know allowed here on out to continue speeding, but he's allowed to get away with speeding because he has important places to be, is what it amounts to, which. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wish that would work for me. Maybe I need to get me a second wife so I can I can drive, at least in Scotland. Yeah, sure. Drive as fast as I want to.
1: Well, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the interview and the podcast. We definitely encourage you to go to www.doubtcast.org and check out the actual video uh, from the Hitchens versus Hitchens debate. I guarantee you, you will enjoy it. It's a very entertaining debate. Also, remember to check out our Facebook and MySpace groups where there's still available a special bonus episode. It's not just leftovers. I'm actually pretty proud of the episode we put together. There's actually good stuff there. Kind of wishing maybe we would have just released it as a normal episode minus the uh, outtake reel, which is the sauciness that made us post it elsewhere. But make sure you check that out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And please make sure you tell other people about our podcast. Help spread the word about Reasonable Doubts so that other people can hear some of these great interviews and other things that we're making available to you. Till next time. Links or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission.